You're now listening to the Major League Real Estate Podcast, Episode 4. Welcome to the Major League Real Estate Podcast, a podcast for operators of large-scale real estate portfolios. My name is Brandon Hall, and I'm your host. Together with my co-host, Dylan Brown, we talk about tax and legal strategies, and we bring on operators of large portfolios for in-depth discussions on how they grew their business. We hope you enjoy, and with that, let's get to it. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Major League Real Estate Podcast. Dylan, how's it going, man? Super awesome. Super sore. Super awesome. Super sore. Why, why are you super sore? Can I ask? <laughs> yeah, you can, you can ask. It's, it's an intentional segue, Brandon. I'm super sore. Uh, I'm yeah, not going to tell you why. You had the plan. Got it, got it, got it, got it. All right, well, why, why are you super sore? Well, get this. So every evening, I try to sneak off and do some rock climbing at my local climbing gym. And uh-huh. uh, this time, we've decided to do lead climbing. So I'm a novice. All of our listeners who are expert rock climbers are probably thinking, oh, this guy's, a, this guy's a new. But for me, it's a big deal, okay? I've been doing top rope climbing for a few months now. And we, we do it like religiously, like a few times a week at least. And uh, it's my only form of workout now at this point. I, I love doing it. Um, and, but the difference between top rope and lead climbing is top rope is exactly what it sounds like. The rope is already up there. You get to climb. Somebody's taking in the slack and you you feel safe along the way. Well, lead climbing, you've got to clip yourself in along the way. So when you first start, it's a little bit sketchy because you're like, okay, I'm like, I'm like 20 feet off the ground. Like if I fall, I'll probably hit the ground. So I just got to keep going until I'm high enough where I feel comfortable. So that's me right now. I'm, I'm sore because I was uh, holding on for dear life trying to get lead climbing certified like last night. So. Oh, I mean, hey, man, good for you. I know rock climbing can be a pretty strenuous exercise uh, and you get like yeah. super strength in your hands and fingers, too, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I did rock climbing. The only time that I've done rock climbing is my brother-in-law's bachelor party. Uh, so we all oh, went man. rock climbing together in the North Carolina mountains. And I guess it was top rope or what, you like top rope to a tree and then you kind of rappel down. Uh, so you rappel know, down. Yeah. I'm super, I don't know what I'm talking about. You rappel down. But so we went over this rock. You would take like like five or so jumps backwards and then you had to just push off the rock and fall and then catch yourself and you would swing under the rocks. It was this big ledge. Yeah. Man, for like, (laughs) for for the first time ever rock climbing, that was probably one of the most (laughs) terrifying experiences of my life. But you couldn't like back out. There's a bunch of, it's a bunch of dudes like, you know, oh yeah, let's do this, man. Yeah. Yeah, No, that's true. Like, what are we doing here? Do we, do we sign our, uh, get get our life insurance all figured out before we go on the trip? Yeah. Jeez, man. (laughs) That's my experience with uh, rock climbing. But good for you, man. Good for you. That's a fun sport. That's a fun sport. Definitely it is. a dream. Yeah. See you guys, sure. like your accountants, they they have cool lives. We're not we're not boring. We're not that boring. Uh, <laughs> As I log off that tonight to start making my own custom spreadsheets. That's that's what I plan on doing. No, <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> little macros. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. What do we got today on the episode? We have a super cool guest, someone who, if you're on LinkedIn, if, you, if you're if you on social media, you might have even heard of. His name is Mauricio. He's an attorney. He's killing it, and he only focuses on syndicators and kind of their legal needs. He's been doing it for decades. I think he said, I don't know how many years he said. Listen to the episode to find out. So he's been doing it for years, and we talked to him today about the importance of operating agreements. So definitely stick around to hear about that because it affects every one of our listeners. 
Yeah, it's kind of a basic topic, but you'd be surprised how many small, typically small partnerships we see that just don't really put a lot of thought into their operating agreements or they don't have one. And then on the larger scale, it's really just understanding, you know, if, if I'm going to go raise capital, I need to take this process very seriously. So we, we explore some of that with Mauricio in this episode. We'll bring him on here in a second. Before we do, let's hit the CPA Insights segment of this. And I wanted to bring a quote that I saw to the table. So instead of some news, just a quick quote. It's something that I saw on, I believe it's on Twitter. I don't remember who posted it. So if you're listening, uh, I apologize for not giving you the credit. But the quote was, you can fire me for the conversation we're about to have, but you should definitely fire me if we don't have it. And it, it just resonated because sometimes as accountants, you have to break bad news. And sometimes people shoot the messenger. And so I just thought it was really nice. I actually shared it with our team and everything. Um, yeah. But it was just a nice, it's a nice, you know, look, if you're hiring advisors that are too scared to break bad news to you, then they're not really looking out for your best interest, right? They're protecting themselves. Right. It's, it's, I'm something, it's something I'm going to use for sure, because I can think of all the times where I felt like the bad guy bringing bad news. But the fact of the matter is there's a reason people came to us in the first place. They want to have high quality advice. They want to be doing things the right way. And it really adds validation too. to like, I've always felt like it was the right thing to do to kind of, if you know something is being done wrong, it's logic, but it's also really tough to want to make that call, especially if we're talking a lot of zeros after a number. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes you run across a scenario where a client has serious issues, whether it's in their tax return or with an idea that they have about a future project that they're going to do that won't actually pan out the way that it's going to on paper, right? To me, I see it as ammo and I, I'm going to use it because it adds confidence for me next time I have that call. I'm super excited to use it in action. Maybe not excited isn't the right word. I would say because using it generally isn't a good sign. <laughs> you got some bad news to yeah. deliver, but I feel confident going into that conversation next time it happens. Yeah, we don't deliver bad news very often, but sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you have to. Well, with yeah. that said, let's go ahead and bring Mauricio onto the show. Mauricio, welcome to the show. Dude, thanks for having me. Super excited to do this one. Yeah, yeah. We're happy to have you on. We've, we've been on a few together in the past. We've like traded podcasts and then we've done events together and everything. So excited to get you on here and educate all of our listeners on your wonderful legal knowledge. But tell us a little bit about yourself. I am first and foremost, I've got my amazing wife. I'm a loving husband, a proud uh, father of two amazing little girls. And uh, what I do for a living is I probably keep a lot of your clients out of jail. That's my job. I help <laughs> real estate syndicators stay out of jail by ensuring that they fully comply with federal and state securities laws. I run a law practice called Premier Law Group, uh, started Premier Law Group 2006, 2007. So whatever that is, 17 years ago, 18 years ago. Today, we exclusively do real estate syndications. That's what we do day in and day out. That's that's all we know how to do, really. Um, Starting to bring in some other attorneys now. My goal for Q1, actually, is to bring in a transactional real estate attorney to handle that piece. And then my dream is just I want to have anything a real estate syndicator needs, right? Estate planning, asset protection, you know, real estate, securities, blah, 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 blah. Uh, I wanna do all of that stuff. But right now we're focused on real estate syndication. Been doing this for 24 years now, since 1999. Yeah, started at a law firm, uh, cut my teeth there. From there I jumped over, it was general counsel for the real estate guys who I know you guys are aware of. That's really where I cut my teeth on on syndication. It's, what's fun about that is that it was old school, right? This is pre-Instagram, pre-social media. So we would literally raise capital 
in a room, 60, 90 people, suit and ties, pitch it on the, on the PowerPoint. I'd be there with PPMs printed out. I'd take checks. I mean, it was like old school and that's how we uh, cut our teeth doing that. And, um, obviously things have changed a little bit in the, in the last, you know, 15 years or so, but, uh, yeah. So I'm happy to be here, man. I think we have a lot of similar clients. Uh, so always fun to, to hang out with you guys. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun working on some clients with you as well. So l- let's start with just the very basic foundational understanding of why would a sponsor need an attorney? How are you working with sponsors at the beginning of that structuring? Yeah. So on our end right now, we come into play, you know, clients get in a contract on a property. Usually they call me in between LOI accepted and purchase sale agreement inked. But our engagement really starts once the property's identified, they're in a contract. And now they're like, great, I've got 60, 90 days to close. I got to go raise a couple million bucks or 5 million bucks. So the clock's ticking, right? So ideally I get the call <laughs> right around PSA. Sometimes, which I'm not a fan of, they'll wait till due diligence clears because they want to be sure they're moving forward. But at that point, it puts a lot of pressure because now they've only got like three weeks to close or 30 days to close, right? And it's like, we're pretty darn fast, but you know, there's certain limits and we've got to wait for clients to do stuff. But basically they come to me because they're in the business of selling securities. And I know for a lot of newbies, that may not make sense. Like, why am I selling security? I'm just buying a piece of real estate. Like, why is securities involved? Why are this, is the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission involved? And the reason for that is anytime you're raising money from investors, from passive investors, where the returns are generated by your efforts, like you're doing all the work to generate the return and your investors just simply writing you a check and don't going home, that's a security, right? That's a textbook. It doesn't matter how you structure it. I know we're going to talk a little bit about operating agreements today, whether it's an LLC or an S-Corp, <laughs> that's for you, Dylan, or our take agreement, right? A tenants in common, profit sharing, like how a debt, right? A promissory note, doesn't matter. The SEC doesn't care about your structure. We'll look straight through the structure and say, ask the question, are you raising money where you're the one generating the returns? And if you are, you are selling securities, which now opens you up to the securities laws. And you have to raise that money, meaning take money from investors in full compliance with not only federal securities laws, but state securities laws. And so that's where we come involved. This is one of the few instances, I think, maybe not few, there's no world where you should be raising money, especially millions of dollars, on not having a securities attorney on your team. It doesn't have to be me, but some securities. It's like, hey, I need to go get some surgery. I'm just going to do it myself, or I'm going to have my mom do surgery. Like, no, no, no. You need a doctor. You need a specialist to go do the surgery. There's no way, you know, you can. Arguably, you know, I need to set up an LLC. Crap, I'll go to LegalZoom or I'll go do this. I'll go to Rocket Lawyer or whatever. But when it comes to securities, you need a securities attorney because number one, you're trying to take care of your investors, right? Your investors are giving you their hard-earned money, two or three million. And honestly, the cost of compliance, and there is a cost and it's not insignificant, but compared to the risk that you're bringing on, which is whatever you raised, Right, the risk-reward balance of not doing that makes no sense. The all that cost is going to be bored by the project. If your project can't cut the compliance cost, then that's probably not a deal you should be doing. So you've mentioned words such as operating agreement and PPM. What are those, and what's the difference between those? So a PPM. Let's start with that because that's my my favorite story. A PPM is a private placement memorandum. This is the document where all of the disclosures that are required by law get presented to the investors all the way the deal can go south all the conflicts of interest all the 
skeletons in your closet as a sponsor, all that information that's quote unquote material, meaning a, an investor would consider relevant to making an investment decision, that has to go in there. It's very similar or akin to the medical consent form. I always love the story. I have horrendous teeth. I go to the oral surgeon all the time. And every time I go to get put under an oral surgery, they give me that little yellow sheet, right? The medical consent form. And it tells me all the ways my surgery can go wrong, even though I'm going to be under for like three minutes and they're going to take my wisdom teeth out. I could have some bleeding, right? I could have an infection. I could die from this like little procedure, right? By the way, real quick, because I've seen those consent forms too, like various activities I've done. Do you sign yeah. them? I do. You know, like, I don't even bother. You don't even, because <laughs> I know some attorneys are like, no way, I'm not signing this. <laughs> no, I, I go to conferences all the time and they ask me to sign some release. And I'm like, what am I going to do? Like not sign it. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get the procedure done. So yeah. So, so you, you review it, you acknowledge all the receipt, right? All the risks, you sign it, the doctor signs it, and then boom, he does the surgery. Same thing. You're going to present to the investors, all your past investors, all the risks, all the ways, however unlikely they are about the deal. That way it protects, it's really meant to protect the investors, right? Because you're giving them all the material, again, all the relevant information so they can make an intelligent decision whether to invest in your deal or not. But it also kind of protects our clients, which is the syndicator, because it's harder for somebody to be like, wait a minute, I lost money because interest rates went through the roof and, and, I, and, and I didn't know that. It's like, nope, if you look at page 74, you'll see that we had a floating rate rate and there was a risk that this had happened. And yes, we had a cap rate, but there was a risk and we disclosed the risk here on page 75 or page 641 or whatever it is. They're not that long, but you know, they're usually 100, 150, 200 pages. So that's what a PPM is. The PPM is where do you disclose all the relevant information so that the investor goes in it with eyes wide open, knows all the risks and makes an intelligent decision whether to invest or not. The operating agreement is the governing document that basically are the rules and regulations around the entity, the LLC. In this case, it's an LLC, right? So an operating agreement is specifically for a limited liability company, right? If you have another entity like a, a corporation, for example, you wouldn't have an operating agreement, you'd have bylaws. If you had a limited partnership, you'd have a limited partnership agreement. But most indications are LLCs, limited liability companies. And so the operating agreement of the LLC is where all the rules, regulations are set out. So for example, if anything were to, I get this question all the time. Oh, Mauricio, what happens? This just happened. What do I, what happens or what do I, like, the, what's the, you go to the operating agreement. That's the manual that tells you if there's a disagreement. I think Gary Keller is the one that said these should, really should be called disagreements, not agreements, because it's really a document that you look at if there's a disagreement. If we don't agree on something, you know, cash calls is a great example. I get the question a lot. Like, hey, I'm, I might have to do a cash call these days. How do I do it or what do I do? I'm like, well, let's look at the operating agreement because there's going to be a section in there about the process of doing a cash call or, you know, what are the splits, right? There's going to be a section. And so that's where everything's put in. And the investor who's going to become a member of that LLC, right? What they're buying is a 2% interest, a 5% interest, whatever. Think of it as share. You're buying stock or shares in a company. Well, shares are corporate shares for LLCs. They're membership units. So that you're going to own two and a half percent, three percent, whatever, and you're going to sign that membership, that operating agreement, which then binds you to that legal contract. Really, at the end of the day, it's a legal agreement between all of the members between themselves and also between the members and the manager, whoever that is. And so all the rules and regulations. You know, how do we hire a manager? How do we fire a manager? What do the distributions look like? There's obviously a huge section on taxes and how, how, how the tax situation is going to be and who gets allocated what. And 
that I can't speak to that. I still get confused between the allocation and distribution and real money and pretend money and, you know, fuzzy, but like it, it gets complicated. So I don't mess with the tax section. I always tell clients that, Hey, this one's already been reviewed by CPA. It's works, but if you want to change it, great, but I got to get something from your CPA that tells me to change it. Cause otherwise I don't even know what I'm looking at. It's a distribution and allocation and this, the other, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I always thought I was good at that. And then I hired a team, which Dylan is a part of who is phenomenal at that. So I concur <laughs> as the tax guy concur that that stuff is super confusing, but real quick. And then I saw Dylan come off of you. So I've got one more question along, along these lines. Do investors really read the PPM and the operating agreement? Like, do they really know what they're getting into? No. What should they do? Like, and I know that this is for operators, you know, so the investors probably aren't actually listening to this podcast. But if you're an operator, I don't know, like, do you appoint your investors to certain sections so that they have clarity and understanding? Do you tell them to go get it reviewed by their own attorney? What should operators do when they send the PPM and the operating agreement out to their investors? They send them out, man. I don't think maybe the question is what they should do versus what they really are doing. I don't, I, they're not making any right. Here's the PPM, you know, re sign it is what they really want. You know, th there's no obligation on the sponsor's part to, to do anything. Now, if I'm an LP being a lawyer, especially if I'm investing a significant amount, like you got to do the risk reward analysis. Now I'm an attorney myself. So when I invest as an LP, I know what I'm doing and I can read it. So I, I'm trying to put myself in a position where like, well, what if, it, if I wasn't a lawyer, what I would do is I would spend the, some of them are really inexpensive, but maybe it's a thousand dollars maybe to have an attorney review that for you. And, and I used to do that when I was younger, when I started, I don't anymore, but that would basically be a three part process in my mind. It would be number one, you having a conversation with that attorney saying, Hey, I've got this deal. This is my understanding of what the deal is. We're buying this and I'm going to get a 7% return and it's 80, 20 and this, that, the other, blah, blah, blah. Great. Then the attorney would review the PPM and the operating agreement let them know, A, something doesn't match. You thought it was a 7% return or there's no pref that's not here or you thought this. And then just some, maybe some potential red flags, say just be aware of A, B, C, D. And then there should be then a final follow-up call where the attorney is kind of letting you know what the holes are. Just make sure you're aware of some stuff. Um, they're not going to be negotiable, right? So you guys know this, but it's a take it or leave it document. Unless there's a, a huge investor, right? That comes in and is like, hey, I'm going to fund most of it and I want to tweak some of the operating agreement. But the reality is if you're putting in the minimum or the 50 or 100 grand or even 200 grand, I would say you're not going to have leverage. Well, my attorney said we need to change paragraphs. No, no, no. It's either you invest or you don't based on that conversation. The only times I've seen them change is again, is if, if you're raising 3 million and somebody's going to come in with a million and a half, fine. But to the extent that you do change it and you've already got investors in, you'd have to reach out to those other investors. Hey, investor, we've changed it. Please resign. And if you don't want to sign, you, whatever. So um, we offer as our firm, uh, I forget how many hours in there, but nobody comes in. We're close. I think we give two hours, I think it is, and nobody uses it. But if an investor has a question about the legal docs, bring us in. Like We'll do a conference call or even just shoot me the email and we'll, we'll answer if they have a specific legal question. They don't understand the language. But even then, like I've done that. I think I've gone on a call with investors once, maybe twice. I know for sure once. They, I don't think anybody reads them, to be honest with you. I can't imagine they would. And anecdotal experiences that they don't, just hearing what my clients have to say on the investor side. And sometimes, regrettably, even on, on the syndicator, on the GP side, you might find instances of where, hey, we just knew that was part of the boilerplate language. But we, as the accountants, we're very detailed oriented. I like to think so, at least. We're going through, at the very least, the operating agreement. And I think 90 
95% of the CPAs out there who are worth their weight, right, in gold, or what's the saying? You know what I mean, saying anybody who is a worthy practitioner of the CPA title, if you will, uh, they're always out there asking for an operating agreement. First thing, when we're talking about just baseline, we're starting to engage, we're starting to think about doing the compliance from the CPA side, from the tax side. But it's interesting when you talk about the PPM being kind of the area where all of the disclosures are made. It's kind of like the entire narrative around the operating agreement, whereas the operating agreement is just like the actual agreement itself, right? So I'm sitting here thinking like, which one's the trump card? Because I've been guilty of this myself. I've many times in the past, I've never even requested a PPM unless I was specifically asked to look at it, right? But more often than not, for my clients, I might just have the operating agreement. So maybe from the investor and from maybe the CPA's standpoint, which one is like the trump card and and where's the overlap? And I guess the last part of that would be what is included in the OA that wouldn't be in the PPM or is there none of that? Yeah, the operating agreement is always going to trump. So one of the things I, when I talk to LPs uh, in terms of like best practice, it's like, well, one of the things you want to look at is make sure that the PPM and the operating agreement match. Because if the PPM says you're getting a 7% return, or a 7% PREF, preferred return, and that's missing in the operating agreement, well, the operating agreement is going to govern, right? So if there's a discrepancy, we go to the operating agreement. Like, I'll give you some examples. Like in the PPM, you're going to have, you know, the business plan, for example. Like what, what are they actually going to do? That's not usually in the operating agreement. Hey, we're going to buy this property. We're going to put in a million dollars of renovations. We're going to increase the rents. We're going to increase the value of the property, occupancy. We're going to refinance. We're going to do that. None of that's really the technical operational part is right in the event of a refinance, then 100 percent is going to go to the investors and then we're going to split it like that. That goes in there. But the actual details of the business plan will not be in the operating agreement. All the information that you're required to disclose about the sponsors, their level of experience and what they do, that's not going to be in the operating agreement. The PPM tends to be more, I would say, almost like a good way to think about it is the PPM is a little bit more high level. Hey, here are the risks. Right. And it's really about the risk, the nitty gritty is going to be in the operating agreement, right? I'll describe, hey, this is an 80-20, you get a 7% PREF, 80-20 split after that. That's very high level. Then you got to go into the operating room to see exactly what the cash flow is going to look like. You know, what, what is, what's the definition of cash flow? Are you holding back reserves? And then, you know, does 100% go for, like the details of the distribution language would be in the operating agreement. PPM is going to be much higher level. Awesome. That makes sense. The PPM is more of that summary kind of look at what the operating agreement's really saying. But if a dispute ever occurs, the operating agreement is what's going to govern. Yes. But remember, the main purpose of the PPM is to disclose the risks, right? Just like that medical consent. None of that's going to be in the operating agreement, right? All the risks that are involved with a real estate investment, you know, the fact that interest rates might spike you know, we have a floating rate and that might increase our expenses. That's not in the operating agreement, like the pro forma, like the PPM. And actually, you, I would argue the PPM itself is really the risk. The, there's a business plan that really talks about the, the business plan, right? And we just use that as an exhibit. So you could theoretically put a section in the PPM that talks about what you're doing as a business plan, but that's generally a separate document that becomes an attachment to the, to the PPM. So all the information about the deal, which is what investors, that's why I think investors don't read the especially the operating room, because they just want to know, you know, high level, what's the returns? Let me look at the pretty pictures. What's the game plan? Oh, you're going to raise rents from like, that's not in the operating agreement that you're going to raise rents from a thousand to 1200. Like what's the actual plan? You know, the business plan is going to show you what you're going to do with my money. I'm going to give you a hundred thousand dollars. What are you going to do with that? Well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to buy this property. And some of that's going to be set aside to improve it. And this is what we're going to do. And then we're going to exit at a X, whatever the rate, the exit cap is. And we're going to make a ton of money and we're going to split it 
80-20 and, hey, we'll give you the money back first until you're made whole. But even that, like, what does that mean, made whole? I mean, that that took me freaking 10 years of, in, in gray hair to figure out that, you know, a capital account is kind of not the right. I think originally we were using capital accounts, right? That's a very tax intensive term. Now I use the term unrecovered capital contribution. So if I give you $100,000, and that's just a defined term, that would be in the operating agreement as a defined term. Meaning if I give you $100,000 and then you return, maybe you do a refinance and give me $40,000 back, well, now my unrecovered capital contribution goes down to 60, not my capital account, because my capital account, I don't even know what happens with the cap, to be honest with you. So that's all you guys. <laughs> so on the PPM, you know, the PPM is supposed to disclose all the risks. Do I need to like list out everything that's material to this deal? Like, is that kind of the strategy for the operators is here's 200 ways the, the deal could could blow up? Yeah, it could go south. And so there, there's always general risks about real estate, right? There's no real estate doesn't always go up. Real estate can come down and that it's affected by market, right? The economy. So there's risks about the economy, general risks. Then there's specific risks about the market itself, right? What are the risks? Like, you know, if, if you're buying something in a marketplace that's very heavily reliant on tourism or oil and gas or whatever, and then something happens, that's a risk that if that something happens there or, you know, whatever, or there's a college and that's the reason why it's good, but the college may shut down. Like just, you just got to think of everything. Now, the level of disclosures in theory anyway, will be dependent on the type of exemption that we choose. So just as a pull it back a little bit, when you're selling securities, you either have to register those securities with the SEC, which we never want to do, we need to find an exemption to registration or it's illegal. Those are your three options. Mm. We're always looking for an exemption, right? We don't want to, we don't want to go public and file and go public. We don't want to do anything illegal. What's the exemption? And so depending on whether your investors are accredited or non-accredited, and that's going to depend on the exemption we pick, the level of disclosures change. So for non-accredited investors, you've got to give it all. Like to your point, here are the 200 ways you know, that you could lose like every single thing we can think of because the government assumes that they're not accredited and they're idiots and we, they need to be protected, right? When it comes to accredited, we do the work anyway, so we give them the same disclosures, but in theory, you could give them less disclosures because they're accredited and the government assumes that they're big boys and big girls, and so they should know better. And if something's not clear, they should ask you. And if you didn't ask, that's your problem. Like You're just more sophisticated, plus you have the ability to, to absorb a loss. I mean, you make millions of dollars, you lose 50 grand, who cares? Less protections over there. So in theory, anyway, you aren't required to give them the full set of disclosures for accredited. The reality is, especially in our industry, is you know, you've already spent the money to prepare these long set of documents. You might as well just give it to everyone. Mm -hmm. But we do have scenarios. So, so for example, probably, I don't know if you know this or not, some people are surprised to hear this, but if you only have accredited investors, you don't actually have a requirement to give them any disclosures, hmm. right? So you don't even have to give them a PPM. What happens though is you, to the extent you do give them disclosure or information, those, that information has to be complete. You can't mislead, you can't omit facts, right? So obviously people always provide information, even if it's a pro forma or just something, right? Nobody's just gonna be like, hey, I have a deal, give me a hundred grand. You're gonna be giving them information and that's gonna then you know, give you the requirement to give more. But a lot of times I still like PPMs in general, but if it's like, you know, it's a small, not a small deal, but there's maybe four or five investors and it's like my dad and my best friend from high school and it's like, or, or this investor has been with me for 20 years and like, it's a really tight group. Maybe we don't do a PPM or we just do kind of a, a general risk, just kind of a little bit because technically I don't have any obligation to give them any disclosures, but to the extent I do, they have to be complete. 
Interesting. And if you were buying property over the past couple of years using floating rate debt, should you have been disclosing risks associated with floating rate debt? 100%. In your experience, how many operators were doing that well? 100% of our clients were doing it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> of course, your clients. I just, I just didn't know if that was like a standard like thing that everybody was. No, I mean, if they were using a, a securities attorney, right, which they should be, then that would have been, I can't imagine that would not okay. be a disclosure of that because it's, it's, it's very clear. I mean, I remember even, I remember when I first saw that, I'm like, hey, what is this? We got to just, I mean, the floating rate, this is kind of a new thing that started, not a new thing, but like, it's only been really prevalent the last two or three years. And they're like, yeah, but we have a cap. Well, okay, guy, you've got a cap. So that we, so, but yeah, all that stuff, should, that's, that's a material that's going to be a disclosure. I saw somewhere, I saw some article, some of them, somebody was alleging that that hadn't been done. And that would be a legitimate claim that you failed to, dis- that would be the cause of action. Hey, you failed yeah. to disclose that we had a, fl- you had a floating rate and you didn't have a rate cap. And then what the plaintiff's lawyer would say is, hey, had my client known that, they wouldn't have invested. That's the argument they're going to wow. make. Now, whether it's true or not, that's what they're going to say. Right. Sometimes it's like you didn't disclose that your mom, you know, worked, got paid five bucks over here. And they're going to say, hey, had you disclosed that, we would have lost money. And you'd be like, eh, not really. Right. But so there's got to be a causal relationship. But um, that's the risk of not putting it all. Like to your point, Brandon, do I have to list all 200? Well, if you list 199 and number 200, even if it didn't happen, like, you know, if I, the plaintiff's attorney is just going to grab onto whatever. So my, my theory is let's give the plaintiff's attorney the least amount of things they could potentially grab into. So let's just disclose it all. So there's no, and again, we can't always think of every single scenario, but that's what we're trying to do is think of every single way your deal can go south so we can put it in there so nobody can complain later on that we didn't tell you about it. Yeah, that tells you something about our culture just in the U.S. and just how, how litigated everything is. It's very interesting. Um, if you don't mind, though, I, I do have a couple questions if we were to bring it back to the OA, just because a lot of our listeners, you know, they're going to be looking at this as what can I take away from this? And I know you hear a lot of requests, these hot button things that we probably hear a lot of. And I want to just dive into a couple things that maybe a typical syndicator might request of you to include in the operating agreement. I have a short list, but I'm open to hearing all sorts of things that you might run across. But one of the things that I see all the time is it's always tax driven, it's depreciation. It's what can we do to allocate depreciation to me as a general partner? My LPs are okay with it, right? What can we do in this operating agreement to do that? And and I guess I'm keeping it intentionally open-ended. I want to hear from your perspective. Is that something you're hearing a lot? How do you handle that? What are you telling these people? So we don't, honestly, we don't get too much pushback. But the way we do it is that we take a position, right? Like, so for example, that's a great one because, you know, again, I'm not a tax guy, but I will ask that, we will ask that in the initial questionnaire. We will say something to the effect of, you know, the operating agreement is drafted this way because that's what we understand from talking to CPAs. Um, I can't remember if it's like, are you okay with that or is there another way you want to do it, right? And then that may sometimes generate the question like, oh, wait a minute, I want to take the depreciation even though you're saying that it's all, you know, the way we, our default, so just so you know, so, so whether I'm right or wrong, the default is for us based on all the conversations we've had is like, hey, you know, depreciation is going to follow cash. So if you put in five bucks into the deal, but you've got 20% of the thing, you're not going to get 20% of the depreciation. That's what we start with. Now, if you come back to me saying, no, 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 I want to take the whole thing, or I want to take 20%, or I want to take the other one I hear a lot about is uh, 
with, uh, here's another great example. Um, hey, I've got a bunch of IRA investors. Can I just allocate all the depreciation? They don't get any benefit from the depreciation. So I want to allocate it. We want to create a different class and do blah, 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 blah. My response is going to be, I don't care. You go talk to your CPA. If your CPA says, yay, let me know. And we'll put that in there because I'm not a CPA. And if you don't like the CPA's answer, then either A, we're not going to do it. Or B, you can go find another CPA that will tell you that they, you can do it. Because <laughs> my favorite CPA joke of all times, which can also be applied to lawyers, but you ask three CPAs the same question, you get five different answers, right? So same thing <laughs> with lawyers. So we're not tax professionals. I'm not, I can't give tax advice and I'm not going to give tax advice. And so I'm always going to punt and defer to the tax. And I'm also, to be honest with you, we're going to seek a, a CYA email at the least where I'm going to get an email. If they're your clients, I'm like, Brandon, Dylan, I want an email from, from you guys saying, hey, yeah, it's cool for them to allocate it this way. I'm like, great. Then I'll, then I'll put the language in there. I try. I, I've now found out you guys don't like to do this because I guess technically it's practicing law. But I, I, I used to be in the school of thought. I was like, hey, here's the freaking Word document. You guys redline it however you think it should be worded. And I'm good. Like, I'm not here to... I don't know anything about tax, so I'm not here to, 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 we can do it from a security standpoint. So as long as your CPA is good, and then I get back, oh, we want to do it this way, this way. And I'm like, I don't understand, understand half of it. Can you just please revise the document the way you want it? And they're like, no, 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 we don't, we can't touch it. And I'm like, well, you know, but anyway, so I, I always punt to the CPA. Yeah, I hear you there. And quite frankly, I, I almost wonder if I have like a very skewed view because almost every time somebody's coming to me, that is their main concern. You know what I mean? And it's probably that's why they're coming to me in yeah. the first place. Well, um, by the and, way, before not to interrupt, but one of the biggest mistakes, I think, and we don't push it as much as probably we should, but there's a lot of people that don't even have their CPA involved in the process, right? Well, that's what I was just about to ask is like, like, should everybody have a CPA involved in this process? A hundred percent. Yeah, I think everybody should have a CPA. The problem is, again, it's like a cost. I don't want to pay. I don't, I don't want to spend the money. But like, yeah, in a perfect world, you hire the security attorney. You should probably have your CPA already. A lot of them don't even have CPAs yet because they were thinking, oh, I don't need a CPA until the end of the year when I got to file my tax returns and get the K-1s. But this is where you plan it ahead of time. And if you've got those questions, go ask your CPA. And then and I think in a perfect world, once the draft operating agreement's done, I like to have it sent, at the very least, it's going to get sent to the real estate attorney because they need to send it to the lender. The lender's always going to have whatever they want to do. Unfortunately, they're not going to even look at it till like a week before close anyway because they don't want to spend the money. But I try and get that out there. Hey, if you've got any changes now, tell me now. And don't wait 60 days when the day before it's, and it's a fire. You know, it's, it's a freaking thing. And then ideally, then that would also go to the CPA at the very least to review the section on the tax, you know. But to be honest with you, I, I would say it. I don't know. I don't have the stats, but I would say a majority, if not the vast majority, don't do that. And a lot of them don't even have CPAs, you know, so they're asking us questions about CPAs. And I'm like, ask your CPA, oh, do you have a, any recommendations? And I'm like, they don't even <laughs> have one, right? So, And what happens too, I, we know this through our experience working with sponsors that have done this is, to your point, it's not like they're doing it to even necessarily save costs. They just don't realize that the accountant needs to be part of the process because we are looking at that tax allocation section, right? So we're trying to help with that particular piece of the operating agreement. And if you don't get that, then sometimes it's not an issue. Sometimes it's totally fine. We can prepare the return and it's, it's fine. But more often than we would like to admit, we get to March 5th and we've sent you your return with all 300 of your K1s 
and you go, wait a second, the depreciation's not flowing the way that I thought it was supposed to flow, or even worse, it's not flowing the way that I told my LPs it would flow. And then we're like, well, what did you tell your LPs? Because your return's been prepared based on what your operating agreement says. So now we have a problem. <laughs> yeah. Do you guys have, this is like, I just thought of this and I just made a note of it, but if you don't, I would highly recommend, you guys should have some collateral, some blog, some report, some, probably not ebook, but some article of the top five reasons why you should have your CPA involved from day one or top five reasons why you should be sending, like, you know what I mean? So number one, that would be helpful for somebody like us because it's like, hey, you really should talk to your CPA and here's an article on why, because like, you know, I can tell them all day long, but I don't, again, these little things, they're outside of my knowledge base. And so, yeah, that would be number one. Like, hey, so you don't have this issue of allocations and we come to tax time and you send your investors a K-1 and you realize then that it's just like when I, one of the things we have as our package and what we do for our clients is at the end of the deal, we, again, we offer an audit, like nobody takes us up on it, but we offer an audit. We're like, hey, once you close on the deal and you pop the champagne, everything's good, send us the docs because we can audit them. And there's always something that some T isn't crossed, some I isn't dotted. This is the time now to go get that operating agreement that the guy forgot to sign or maybe signed it in their personal name when it really should have been an LLC or it should have been an IRA custodian, blah, blah, blah. Now is the time, not five years from now when there's a lawsuit and you're like, crap, I don't have an operating agreement signed. Same thing for you guys. The time to figure that out is now so that I can review the allocation. That's one of 10 things. But one of the things we can do is make sure that the depreciation and allocation follows what you think it is your securities attorneys, they're a bunch of idiots when it comes to CPA stuff. So don't rely on them. Not that we give them any advice. Come talk to us so we can say, okay, oh, you want it this way? Let me make sure I review the securities attorney's operating agreement and see if that matches. And if it doesn't, we can have a conversation with them. Yeah, I think you've just given me some ideas on content. So <laughs> we're just going to make sure that happens Q1 of 2024. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, we, we, we actually offer a lot of, uh, advisory in, in consulting around the operating agreement piece. I don't know that we have specifically stated like a post closing tax document audit. We kind of do it, but like framing it like that is really smart. Nobody takes you up on that. Wow. Yeah. I have to imagine that somebody in that position is just going ahead and saying, well, we're not going to get it re-executed anyway. So I guess at this point, it is just, it is what it is, but I can you, see you so much value. You, yeah, but you would, because they'd be like, hey, Dylan, I just looked at your docs and I realized that you you signed your operating agreement as your individual when it's actually an LLC. Do you mind re-signing? I mean, that, that's now true. when Dylan's pissed off and, and has called an attorney to sue me, that's not the time to ask for it. It's the time to ask for it is now, right? What's the saying? The time to fix the roof is when it's not raining. Yeah, exactly. Well, Mauricio, I know we could talk all day about the importance of the operating agreement. And so we're definitely going to have you back to kick off our kind of multi-part series on structuring, but we're already running out of time today. So I wanted to thank you first and foremost for coming on. And I have two questions for you. I don't mean to take you off guard here, but we have to ask this to everybody because it's, it's something we're passionate about at Hall. And it's something we hope all of our guests are passionate about. And we're calling this one the Streamline Spotlight. And the question for you is what technology have you most recently adopted to streamline your business or professional workflow that has made you more effective? So my joke's going to be, I just discovered Instagram, even though, I've, you know, so it's like, I just discovered it, but uh, AI. So we've incorporated AI into our business because we're now having part of the process, streamline questionnaires, 
we're inputting stuff to kind of get that preliminary kind of boilerplate thing started. We're using AI for that. And, and it's not quite there yet, but it's, it's pretty scary what AI can do. And that's the number one piece of technology that we're using right now. I love that. That's a pretty common answer. Do you have a specific platform that you're willing to share? Or is it all just like ChatGPT or modifications to that? No, or- we're developing our own our own platform. So, And we're thinking about maybe offering that. I'm kind of torn between that, but there might be an, an option where it's like a, almost a do it. Like if you're raising 100 grand, it doesn't make any sense to spend 15 grand on compliance. So maybe that's where mm-hmm. this is going to be. Hey, I'll spend three grand for this kind of kind of do it yourself, but it's better. It, it's still not perfect, but it's better than you doing it on your own. And at the end of the day, it's 100, 200 grand. It's the worst that could happen is you, you know, you're out 200 grand. So that's where I, I kind of want to use that for people who are raising small amounts of money. Super fascinating. We're going to have to touch base on that at some point because yeah. I want to learn all about what yeah. you have going on. So yeah, yeah. I appreciate it. Last question is where can people find you if they want to learn more? I'm actively on LinkedIn. So are you. So I know that's how, probably how we collect. So I, I post there every day with my thoughts and, and try and add as much value. I've got a YouTube channel that I'm really trying to blow up. And so uh, I highly encourage you guys. I got about 300 videos. And so just check that. I, I deposit a lot of stuff there. And Instagram, man, it's the new thing. Instagram, Mauricio Raul. Uh, I'm uh, pumped. I don't know how long it's going to last, but I've, it's been a week. So I'm excited about it. that's huge that's huge awesome Mauricio well we're happy to have you just like always and we're looking forward to next time thanks man thanks for listening to the Major League Real Estate Podcast there are three ways that you can connect with us if you're interested in getting email updates on upcoming shows go to www.mlrepodcast.com and subscribe there If you'd like to explore a tax and accounting relationship with our CPA firm, you can go to www.therealestatecpa.com slash MLRE and fill out the web form to get started. And if you'd like to connect with Dylan or I on social media, you can find us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Just search Dylan Brown CPA or Brandon Hall CPA. Shoot us a request. We'd love to connect. We'll see you next time.